1 Samuel chapter number 17. Many of you are familiar with the passage, probably uh, first couple verses that we read. You'll know exactly where we are. But I want you to listen carefully this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 17. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, uh, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him, and he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel, and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David, boy, I'm thankful that it doesn't stop at verse number 11. It goes on to verse number 12 and it says, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren. And carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the, battle, to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word. Give me unction and power in the preaching, Father, that I may give glory to you. Lord, I pray that you would just do a work in our hearts that would not soon be forgotten. If there's one amongst us that's lost, show them their need of salvation. 
And I pray that they'd come to know your Son as their Savior. Lord, we ask all these things in the precious and magnificent name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Now, as I began reading that, no doubt many of you thought to yourself, well, I know exactly where this preacher is going. I know this passage. I've read it a hundred thousand times. I know exactly what is in it. And uh, you're probably right. You probably do know much of what's in this passage. Uh, We find ourselves uh, in a time where the Philistines have set themselves in array against the battle, uh, against the nation of Israel. It's a battle time and a battle is taking place. But in the midst of this battle, we find that there are three separate occasions when people make statements to David trying to define who and what he is and what his situation is. We're going to look at them for a moment this morning. But can I say to you that the situation in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and the situation today has not changed a whole awful lot. We're in much the same situation today, but the difference is that the battle today, friend, is not physical, but the battle today is spiritual. Now, I want to show you a few things, and I began to think about this battle and the battle that we're in. You know, the Bible says that we're in a battle. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're in a battle. We, we are called to stand. Uh, whenever uh, God wanted to uh, give His uh, children uh, prescribed things to wear, He didn't give them a uniform or uh, a dress uniform that looks nice. He gave them armor. Because the reality of it, friend, is that we are going to face battles and difficulties. We have three enemies today in this world that we live in. Now, you may have more than that. I've probably got a few I don't even know about. But three that I know of, and that is the world, the flesh... And the devil. This is the triune enemy of the uh, the believer and of God. And we are going to battle these things in our life every day. You say, well, what are those? Well, uh, the world is the outside influence that's around us. And can I say that the world has a desire to see Christians be watered down in their worship, be uh, compromised in their convictions, and to be loose in their love of Jesus Christ. That's the desire of the world today. They want to see you be the least effective Christian that you can be. The flesh is that which afflicts us from within. That's who we are. And can I say to you that uh, you may be able to get out of the world, you may be able to some degree to get away from the devil, but you're always going to battle your flesh. It's always with you. It's ever-present in your life. The desire to do wrong, the desire to do evil, the inclination of the human heart to go against God. We all battle the flesh. And then there is the devil. And the devil is a real uh, persona. He is a real person. The Bible teaches that he is not just a personification of evil, but he is a literal real person with a will, with a desire, with an agenda. And can I say to you today that the devil is wreaking havoc in this world. God's still on His throne, but understand the devil is wreaking havoc in this world. Do you know that the devil has a desire to wreck your life? I always heard it said when I was growing up, and this is true, they would say, God has a will for your life. And I'm thankful God does have a will for my life. They'd say, God always wants what's best for you. And I say, Amen, God wants what's best for you. And they'd always say, well, you know, uh, God knows what He's doing in your life. And Bless His name this morning that He does know what He's doing in my life. But can I flip the coin and can I say that the devil has a will for your life too? He has a desire for you. Could I say that, uh, that the devil has an agenda that he's trying to operate in your life? And though God wants what's best for you, can I say the devil wants what's worst for you? And can I say, just as there is the chance of you doing the will of God, uh, there's also the chance of you doing the will of the devil. It's a battle that we're in today. And can I say that as I read this, and I just want to say a few things to you very quickly before we get to the preaching. I wrote these three things down. We see that this was a time of combat. That's what it says in verse number 1. It says that the uh, Philistines had set the battle in array. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, you know, I don't want to be a part of this fight. But notice what it says in verse number 1. It does not say that the Israelites gathered their army together against the Philistines. Now, they did, but that's not what it tells us first. It tells us before anything else in verse 1, now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. Could I say whether you want this battle or not, this battle is coming your way. Uh, This is not something we have a choice in. If you're saved by the uh, grace of God, washed in the blood of Christ, birthed by the Holy Ghost into the family of God, there is a battle and it is coming your way. This was a time of combat. But I would say also it's a time of confrontation. Look at the positions of the armies in verse number 3. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. Can I say to you, and I'm being honest this morning, and I'm going to try to help you if you'll let me. Most of us know right from wrong. Yeah, that's the truth. Most of us know right from wrong. 
But you know what we're allowing the world to do? We're allowing the world to play us for fools. Can I say that again? Uh, let me give you an illustration. You remember what it was like when you was raising your kids? And your kids would do something wrong. Maybe it was even dumb. Amen. Kids have been known to do that. And you'd go to them and you'd say, Now, why did you do this? And they'd look at you and they'd say, Well, I didn't know it was wrong. But you knew better than that, didn't you? And you said, No, no, I know better. You knew that was wrong. Let me tell you what your child was trying to do. I did it when I was little. I'm sure uh, LB's going to do it to me when he gets older. Every child does it. It's just a part of, uh, of the makeup of a child. But they're trying to play you for the fool. They're trying to convince you that they didn't know when they did know. And can I say to you that the world is trying to play us for fools today. And a lot of believers look at God and they say, Oh, Lord, I just don't know what's right and wrong. God's told us what's right and wrong. The camps are divided. We know what we need to do. I mean, we're on the one hill. We know what's right. We know we need to be serving God. We know we need to be loving Him. We know we need to be reaching others. We know we need to be in His Word. We know we need to be in prayer. We know what's right. We're on our side of the valley. But the world's on their side of the valley, and by the same token, we know what's wrong. I'm convinced that a lot of stuff that people ask questions about, the reason they ask it, they're not wanting an explanation, they're wanting vindication. Can I say that again? They're not wanting an explanation, they're wanting vindication. They're not wanting to know whether it's wrong or not. They know it's wrong, they're wanting somebody else to agree with them that it's right. The camps are divided, it was a time of confrontation. But can I say it was also a time of crisis? We saw it in verses 8 and 9, and I'll not take the time to read it. Uh, but do you realize every day they would go out to battle? You say, why'd they do that during the day? Because it'd be tough to do it at night, amen? It'd be tough to fight at night. You wouldn't know who you was fighting. And so every day, the armies would go out to battle one against another. That's what it says. When David showed up, uh, it says that they were going forth uh, to battle and to fight, and that they were uh, about to cry in the battle. Every day they would go out to fight. But before they did, long about breakfast time, this big giant by the name of Goliath would step out from the ranks. Down into the valley he would walk, and he'd begin to strut around like a peacock, and he'd begin to say, I defy the armies of Israel. I defy the living God. And you know what he said? He, he struck a deal with him. Now listen carefully to what he said. He said to him, he said, uh, we're Philistines, you're the servants of Saul. Now he's not saying we're better than you, although he did believe that. What he's saying is this, he's saying, uh, you want us to be servants, we want you to be servants. And what Goliath says is, I'll tell you what, I'm going to strike you a deal. He says, if you can send me a man that can beat me, then this entire army will become your servants. But if you send me a man and I beat him, then all of you all become the servants of the Philistines. That's what's called a crisis point. We use the term crisis to mean calamity, but actually what the word crisis means is it means to be at a very deciding and pivotal point in a matter. And this was a pivotal point in the battle. What he was saying is, right now you could win this battle if you can come out here and beat me. There's people watching you. There's people depending on you. And listen carefully, there's people that your actions are going to affect. That's why this battle was so important. And could I say to you today, friend, there's a lot of Christians around you that are watching to see the way you're going to live. There's a lot of people that if you'd step out and serve God, they'd step out and serve God. But there's a lot of people that because you won't, they won't. And there's a lot of people, uh, when you sin, when you do wrong, it's like a shockwave through your family, your friends, your co-workers, your acquaintances. And all of a sudden, your sin that you promised up and down, it would only affect you. It didn't just affect you. It affected everyone around you. It was a crisis point. But we find at this time that a young man comes to the battle. He's got a name of David. David is his name. We know David. He was the first true uh, king of Israel. And he comes to the battle. And when he comes to the battle, there's a three, thing, three things that I think are important to know about him before he gets there. First off, we know from chapter 16 that David was a converted man. It tells us uh, in chapter number 16, I believe it's verse number 7, it says uh, that the Lord looked on his heart. Now, Samuel goes out to anoint uh, David to be the king of Israel. And uh, we've read that many times. We'll talk about it here in a moment. Uh, but whenever he goes out there and he talks to Jesse, David's daddy, uh, he's got all these brethren, and he brings them all for, before the, uh, the Samuel, the prophet, and he marches them in front of him and says, uh, Surely in this group, this is where your king is. And you know what uh, Samuel says? says, No, he's not amongst this crowd. Who's left? And you know, a lot of times, that's what it is in the Christian life. There's a lot of people that look good, but when the, then when the battle's on, you have to ask who's left. And it says, who's left? It says, well, there is one more boy, and he's out in the field, and he goes by the name David. He said, bring him here, that's the one. And it says in chapter 16, verse 7, that the Lord looketh not on the outward man or on the appearance, 
but he looketh on the heart. David's heart was right with God. He was converted. Uh, do you know, we have a terminology we use for that today, and it's this terminology of being born again. Uh, now, I understand there's theological implications, but, but can I just say that David was a young man that knew God. And if you've been saved by God's grace, you know God. You've been converted. You've been saved. You've been born again. And you ought to be a different person because of it. We see that not only was he uh, converted, but we see that he was consecrated. Uh, what did it mean when Samuel took that horn of oil and poured it over his head? It meant that he was set apart for a specific purpose. He was anointed to be the king. Do you realize when God saved you, He didn't just save you so He could leave you in the same shape He found you in? When God saved you, He set you apart and made you different in this world. When God saved you, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. And God's got a plan for your life. He set you apart. Now, some of you say, oh, preacher, I'm getting up in years. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I, I've got that snow on the head. Or, uh, you know, maybe it's a desert. Mine's getting that way. And you say, I'm getting old. Surely I can't do anything. Well, that's not true. You can do something for God. We find that to be true of Caleb uh, in the book of uh, Joshua, that even when he was an old man, he took the mountain that God had promised him. Uh, if you're saved, you've been set apart, and God's got a plan for you. But we see not only was he consecrated, he was commissioned. Jesse had sent David out to the battle. He had sent him out into the world and into the battle. And do you know that you and I, friend, if we've been saved by God's grace, God sent us into the battle. I mean, we're here for a purpose, and that purpose is to stand and to be different and to be separate. And there's people, listen to me, there's people that are failing and falling from the battle left and right, and they need somebody to come up along beside them and say, just hang in a little longer. Our captain's in control. So this is the David that we see. And David comes down to the battle, and he's not supposed to be there to fight, quote-unquote, but when he comes to the battle, he finds that it's just getting ready to heat up, and he takes the gift that Jesse's father had given him, and he goes and he finds a group of men, and his older brother Eliab is amongst them. If you've ever have, had an older brother before, you know what's about to happen, amen? Because David begins to stand there, and he's listening to the men. And one of the men looks at him, and looks at the men around him, and says, Who's this Philistine that he should defy us? By the way, there's always people who want to talk but don't want to get down in the battle. That was this young man. He said, who's this Philistine that he should defy us? And then you know what he said? He said, whoever knocks his head off, I mean, that's in the Hebrew. You'll have to study for that. But whoever knocks his head off, whoever kills him, they're going to uh, get uh, their father's house will be free. They're going to marry the king's daughter. They're going to become a wealthy man. In other words, their life is going to be made if they'll do that. Well, David's standing there. We'll talk about it in a moment. David had different priorities. And David begins to talk to the men. And you know what David basically says? He, he says, someone ought to go down there and fight, and I'm willing to do it. And Eliab, his older brother, looks at him, and his anger was kindled. Now, I want you to notice this, because Eliab tries to tell David what he is and what he's supposed to be doing. And can I say, the world is trying to tell us as Christians who and what we should be. And we need to just do away with that mess. We're who we are in Christ. We need to get back to what the Word of God says about Listen, we are wrecking a group of young people today by letting the world set the bar for them. I mean, listen, if our young people don't live up to what the world expects of them, we feel like we failed as parents. God help us. We ought to feel like we failed as parents if they do wind up like the world. But that's the day we live in. And we look at our young people, and you even get it sometimes. You can see it in parents' eyes. You can see it in kids' eyes. They feel so trapped and so imprisoned and so bogged down and burdened down because they can't live like the world. Hey, it ain't no wonder our kids wind up in the world when we've got that attitude too. I'll tell you what we ought to be doing. We ought not be trying to push our kids to live up to the world's bar. We ought to be throwing that bar out the window and saying, you're not judged by what the world thinks of you. And there's three things I want you to notice. The first thing that Eliab tries to do is he tries to redefine David's identity, who he is. Notice carefully what it says in verse 28. Uh, it says to us, uh, well, I've got to get my page over. Down in verse number 28, it says, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, now notice the first thing he says. He says, Why camest thou down hither? You know what he said to David? He said, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And can I say the first thing that Eliab accused him of being was of being illogical. He said, it don't make no sense that you're down here at this battle. Do you, know what, do you know what Christians are hearing today? Now listen to me now. Christians are hearing that it is illogical to serve Jesus Christ. 
That's what our young people are hearing. Our young people are being, hey, hey, if you want to call yourself Christian, that's fine, but don't get like these fanatics out here that get sold 100% into it. That's what they're hearing. He looked at him and said, David, it doesn't make any sense that you're here. Can I say I'm glad that the way that I live don't make no sense to the world. We, we ought to live in such a way that confounds the world. We don't have to make sense to the world to be pleasing to God. In fact, the Bible teaches if we're pleasing to God, we're not going to make sense to the world because the Bible says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. And then it goes on to say that we walk by faith and not by sight. This world doesn't understand the way a Christian lives, and they shouldn't understand it. They're dead and their trespasses and sins. It doesn't make any sense to them what a living man does. They can't reckon it. They can't realize it. He said to him, you're being illogical. Notice the next thing that he said. He says, why hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? He said, you're being irresponsible. That's what he said to him. You're being irresponsible. David, you have better things to be doing than to be in this battle. Those sheep are in the wilderness, and that's where you're supposed to be. You have better things to be doing than to be in this battle. And can I say to you, listen, God help us this morning. Uh, when we come to a place where our children's uh, educational development is more important to us than their spiritual development. Now, I'm all for a good education. I wish I had a better one. I mean, I'm all for learning. I, think, I mean, listen, this world's getting dumber by the minute. I think we ought to learn. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not against it. But listen to me, your child or, or you yourself can be as bright as the daylight star and still die and go to hell if they don't know Christ. And there's a lot of people with more degrees. I mean, so many degrees, they, they're, they're about frozen. Amen. There's people that are so brilliant and they have all the academics in the world and all the education, but at the end of the day, they've got no relationship with God. Or if they have one, it's barely gasping along. They're not living for Christ and they're miserable because of it. This world says, listen, if you, try to, if you spend all your time going to church and not doing these other things, you're being irresponsible. Well, let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is they're banking on this world being around forever. That's the problem. The Bible says that the elements shall melt with fervor and heat. The Bible says that heaven and earth uh, shall be burned up. There's coming a day when this world's not going to matter. He said, you're being irresponsible, David. And then notice what he said. He, he says, David, you're being irreverent. He says, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Uh, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. He says, I know why you're here, David. You're here because you think you can do something. Now, listen now. You know what this world says to our young people and to us as believers? This world looks at us and says, it's fine for you to believe what you believe. But now don't go telling me Jesus is the only way. That's irreverent. That's unkind. That Listen, that's prideful to think that you have the truth and no one else does. No, friend, that's the reality of things, is that Christ is the only way. The reality, and you're going to hear it, friend, and I listen, I, man, I'm burdened for our young people. I mean, I really am. I'm burdened for our young people. I, I see what they have to live with and what they have to go through, and you're going to have people that are going to look at you and say, you just think you're so much better than us. You just think you're... Because you go down to that church down there, you think you're so much better than us. You're irreverent. And, and you, on your work site, you're going to have people that are going to look at you and say, oh, well, that's, that's goody-two-shoe so-and-so. You know, they don't drink. They don't cuss. They don't, they don't step out on their spouse. They think they're better than us. So you call them irreverent. But listen to what David says. David answers him, and he says, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? Three things I think David is saying here. And the first is this, and it's plain as the nose on your face. Uh, you see, Eliab looked at him and said, David... You're being illogical in being here. David says, no, I'm not being illogical because the battle is real. The battle is real. It's only illogical if this thing's a fairy tale. You hearing me now? It's only illogical to serve Christ if this thing is a fairy tale. Do you know why the world says that we're being illogical uh, for meeting at the house of God three times a week, uh, for having revival five days? I can't tell you the number of people. When you tell them you're having revival five days a week, they go, Ooh, five days? Five. They'll sit at home in the recliner and watch their favorite show that comes on a marathon for 18 hours. Five days? That's illogical. I've got better things to do with my time. No, it's not illogical for you to serve God because this is a real battle we're in. 
I mean the souls of our children and grandchildren. I'm talking about uh, the, the souls of our friends and family. The souls of our relatives are on the line in this thing. It's not illogical to serve God because this is a real battle. Notice the second thing implied by uh, Eliab looked at him and said, you're being irresponsible by being here. David says, no, I'm not being irresponsible because the battle is not only real, the battle is raging. When David showed up, he was going out to the field of battle. And David said to himself, surely there is more work to be done here on this battlefield than out in that pasture field. Surely there is more to be done here. Let me tell you something. You can find Christians that will shout it out, that will have a good time, that will get blessed. They're a dime a dozen. But you find me one that will dig in when the battle gets hot. They're a little tougher to find. I, I, I mean, you can find people when everything's good, they're ready to suit up in their armor that they don't need. But now when things start to get tough, then all of a sudden, they're nowhere to be found. Let me tell you something. This battle that's raging today, it's not irresponsible spend all your time serving God. That's not irresponsible. Some people say, well, you know, you raise your kids in church like that, you're going to ruin them. No, you're not going to ruin them. That's the best thing for them. Well, they'll miss out on so much. Yeah, they'll miss out on so much like, uh, like adultery and fornication, drunkenness, drugs, wrecked lives. They'll miss out on a lot, won't they? But you go ahead and get them out of church and get them in those things. You know what they will miss out on? They'll miss out on Holy Ghost worship. They'll miss out on seeing a godly home. They'll miss out on Bible preaching. They'll miss out on all the things that matter. So many of us were out, listen, we're out, yeah, we're out in the pasture field tending our little uh, hurt feelings of sheep when there's a battle raging and there's people dying on the battlefield. But I want to say that not only because it was real and because it was raging, uh, but Eliab said to him, said, I know why you're fighting. I know why you're here, David. You're here because you think you're better than everyone else. David says, no, that's not why I'm here. He says, the battle's not only real and raging, the battle is righteous. There's a cause. That's what a cause is, typically. A cause is a righteous thing to be employed in. David said, this is the right thing for me to be doing. Listen to me, it ought to be enough. And I, I, I mean, I, God gives us more grace. If we get an ounce of grace, we're getting more than we deserve. But God gives us more grace. Listen, God gives us more grace than even we need. That's why it's grace. And, and it would be sufficient uh, for God to say, do it because it's right. But do you know He gives us reasons sometimes? But it ought to be enough to say, God's put me in this battle. This is where I need to be. This is the right thing for me to be doing. I don't know why it is we've come to a place. When I was growing up, and I, can I share this with you? When I was growing up, I was not under the impression that our household was a court of law. Because, you see, in a court of law, you got to plead your case. In a court of law, there was a burden of proof. In a court of law, there was evidence. And can I say, listen now, some of you grew up this way. In my house growing up, there didn't have to be any of those things for me to be condemned and whipped. Say amen right there. You know what I'm talking about. We were told what was right to do, and that was enough. We don't always have to understand it. And you know what? Half the time we wouldn't have understood it. We don't always have to understand it. We didn't always have to agree with it. It was right and so we were taught to do it. You know, that's helped me in my life because there's times God tells me something to do. And I say, Lord, why? And he says, you don't get to find out yet, son. And, and now some of us, the way that we grew up, we won't serve God under those circumstances. We have to have reason for everything. But those of us that had somebody that loved us enough to make us do right even when we didn't like it, even when we didn't understand it, even when we didn't agree with it, we know what it is to serve God even when we don't like it, understand it, or agree with it. He says, this battle is right. We ought to be employed in it. So we see he tried to redefine his identity. Look down at verse number 31. Uh, as he's standing there, uh, it says in uh, verse number 31, and when the words were uh, heard, uh, the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul. Now, Saul is the king of Israel. And it says that they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. So there's people come to Saul and say, hey, you ought to hear what this boy David's talking down here in the trenches. You ought to listen to him. And Saul said, well, bring him to me. I want to hear him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. David says, I'll go down. I'll fight him. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, 
Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Here we see the world trying to define David again. But at first they're trying to define his identity. But here we see them trying to define his ability. They're trying to tell David what he is able and not able to do. And I want you to notice three things that Saul says. The first thing that he says, or I'm going to do them a little out of order, but I've got a reason for it. Uh, One of the things that he says to David is, David, you can't fight this battle because you are too inexperienced to fight it. He says, you're but a youth. You know, I, I was a child once. Any of you all children once? Any of you all still awake? <laughs> I was a child once, and I remember what how, and, and I'm a little closer to that time in my life than some of you are to that time in your life. And I remember the frustration of being told that I was not able to do something. I, I mean, listen, I, I look back now. You remember what it was like, and some of you boys in particular, you men, you may remember a little bit better, although some of you ladies probably uh, did this too. You remember what it was like when you first started mowing the yard? I mean, there was nothing more exciting than mowing the yard. Well, we get wiser as we get older, don't we? <laughs> and uh, it gets old real quick. But do you know why we wanted to do it? It was something new. And we said, I'm able to do that. And probably for quite a while, if you was like me, you were saying, Daddy, when can I mow the yard? Daddy, when can I mow the yard? Daddy, when can I mow the yard? And he told me time and time again, you're not able yet. You're not big enough yet. Then there came a day when he looked at me and he said, All right, son, climb on the mower. I'm going to show you how to do it. There's something frustrating about being told that we're not able. And and to look at someone and to say, you can't fight this battle because you've never fought this battle before. I remember whenever I was getting a job, and I got so frustrated. Uh, I mean, it's hard on young people. They go out and try to get a job, and you know what they're always told? They look at them and they say, well, you know, I I can't hire you because you don't have enough experience. Okay, I'm saying it's my first job. I'm sorry, you don't have enough experience. They can't get hired because they need experience. They can't get experience because they need to get hired. And they're stuck a lot of times. Saul looks at him and says, David, you can't fight this battle because you've never fought a battle before. Notice also he looks at him. He says, you are inexperienced. But then he says, you're incapable. Thou art not able to fight against this Philistine. David, you're crazy if you think that you can take this giant on. You know, it feels intimidating sometimes to serve Jesus Christ. I'm being honest with you. It feels intimidating. I mean, you're surrounded by people, and, and, and it, it shames me, and it ought to shame all of us uh, when atheists can be so bold about their lack of faith, but we won't be bold about our faith. But we live in a day of confrontation like David did, and it must have been intimidating. I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, picture yourself, uh, kind of a profile view of that, those two mountains, those two hillsides in that valley. I mean, put yourselves in the shoes of a spectator that sees this little dwindling army of Israel on the one side, and over here the Philistines arrayed in all their armor and all their weapons. They've got everything they seem to need. And then to beat it all, early in the morning you see the darkened figure of a a, a monstrous giant walk down into the valley and begin to strut around. That had to be intimidating. And sometimes the devil sneak up beside you and say, I know you want to serve God, but you can't. You're incapable. And then notice a third thing that he said, he said to him, you're in over your head. He looks at him and he says, thou art a youth. And he, a man of war from his youth. He looks at David and he says, David, you're just a child. And that giant down there has been killing people ever since he was younger than you. You're in over your head. Sometimes, and let me be honest with you this morning, sometimes it's easy to feel in and over our heads. There's a lot of things vying for the Christian's attention in this world that we live in. And, it, I mean, it scares me to death. I, you know, I mean, being a, a, a parent, I, I, it's a terrifying thing. Let me say that again. Some of you are parents, some of you are grandparents, and I hope you feel this way too. It's a terrifying thing trying to raise kids or grandkids in this world that we live in. It's daunting sometimes. I mean, you look at the statistics and you see what few kids come out of their mama and daddy's home and they're well-adjusted and they're in church and they're serving God. And you look at the vast numbers of kids that go to the world and go to the devil and die and go to hell. And it's daunting sometimes. You look at it and say, I'm in over my head. But notice three things that David says in answer to these. He looks at him. Saul looks at him and says, son, you're just a child. 
You've never had anything like this happen. But you know what David says? Look here in the passage. David says to him down in, I believe it's verse uh, number 32 uh, or 33, and Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Verse 34, And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his hand. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Saul looks at him and says, David, you've never been to battle before. You don't know what you're getting into. David says, I have seen my share of battles. He starts to tell about things in his life. And let me tell you something. You know what David's saying? Listen carefully now. David is saying, when I met the lion and when I met the bear, those were smaller battles. But in them, God was preparing me for the day that I would meet this giant. David says, God's been preparing me for this day. Sometimes it's easy to feel like, well, I've never faced this before. I don't know what this is like before. But can I tell you that the good God of heaven that sits on a sovereign throne, uh, that uh, orders your steps, that knows your innermost musings, that God has been preparing you for whatever battles you're about to encounter. He begins to tell his story, but then he begins, number two, to speak of his strength. He says that uh, there in the passage, he says, I grabbed him by the beard and slew him. That's why if you're going to wear a beard, you've got to be a manly man. People liable grab it and try to slay you. <laughs> I grabbed that lion by the beard and I slew it. David says, not only, listen, not only have I been involved in some battles, but I've been victorious in some battles. There's some things, and they may have not seemed big at the moment, but I look back and see what God was doing in my life. And some of you are getting ready to face some big battles and some big choices in your life, and you feel intimidated and you feel discouraged. But if you'll look back, you'll see that you fought a few battles, and God's helped you through along the way. He begins to talk about his strength, but notice thirdly, he begins to talk about his sovereign. Notice what it says very carefully. He's telling this story, and it's unusual because David doesn't really say anything about God until you get down to verse number 37. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, He will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. I picture it this way, and you fault me if you want to, but I I, I picture it this way. Saul looks at David. And he points down to that valley and he says, David, don't you see how big that man is? Don't you see how big that giant is? David, don't you see the size of your obstacle? Don't you see the size of your problem? David looks at him and says, yes, king, I do. The only problem is you don't know how big my God is. I see the size of the giant, but you don't see the size of my God. I I see that it's a big problem. Listen, our young people, they look at it, they say, how can I ever serve God with so many obstacles? Can I tell you that the same God that delivered the Philistine into David's hands is the same God that you pray to and that hears you? He says, look at the size of my God. I may be small, I may be insignificant, but I've got a big God that's able and abundantly willing to help me and to answer my prayers. And Saul looks at David and he says, Go, the Lord be with thee. I want to show you one final one and I'm done. Look down in verse number 41. So David goes down to the brook. He gathers five stones. Uh, by the way, it says there in uh, verse number uh, 39, I heard this all growing up. Now listen, now I heard this all growing up. People said to me, the reason David did not uh, wear Saul's armor is because it was too big for him. That's what I heard growing up. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he essayed to go, for he had not yet proved it. Let me tell you something. There's going to be some things in your life that that are going to look like a, a good answer. But you better stick to what you know works. Because it's easy to get tempted and drawn astray. And listen, there's going to be some temptations in your life that are going to look like they'll fix it. But you better stick with what you know is going to work. We know the Word of God's true. We know it's going to work. We know God can help us. Down in verse uh, number uh, 40, let's see, let's start at verse 41. It says that David went down, and the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him, and when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. 
Notice what the Philistine says. Notice what Goliath says here. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me. I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. So we see that this is a little bit different here. Because what Goliath is doing is he's not redefining David. He's redefining himself in the eyes of David. David comes to Goliath and he's bold and he has courage. God has been working in his heart and preparing in his heart. And David comes down and he's ready. And so what the enemy does is he does not redefine David. He redefines himself. We see the redefining of David's enemy. And there's three things that Goliath says that I want you to notice that he says about, uh, about David. The first thing he speaks of is his equipment. Now, he's speaking about himself here, Goliath is. And he looks at David and he says, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? A stave would have been a stick or something you would have used uh, to herd dogs or to drive dogs. And what he does is he looks at David and what he's saying is, David, you're not equipped for this battle that we're about to fight. I mean, you read earlier in the passage along with me, uh, the, the spearhead uh, that was 600 shekels, uh, the spear that was as large as a weaver's beam. His shield was so large uh, that another man had to carry it for him and would go out with him. And the Bible teaches that he had a large sword as well because David would use it uh, to cut off his head. Uh, Goliath is armed to the hilt. And he looks at David and he says, i got better armor. And i got better weapons than you do. Do you know sometimes we get feeling like the world has all the advantages? I mean, now listen to me now. The world not only has temptation, which appeals to our flesh. The world has propaganda. That's what Hollywood is. It's propaganda. You don't believe it. Spend a little time watching it. You'll see there's an agenda behind Hollywood. There's propaganda there to brainwash our young people into believing uh, that the God of their fathers is a fairy tale and that their parents are just fools and they don't know what they're talking about and that they need to long and lust after the things of the world. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, listen to them sometime when they start talking about God. Hardly one of them believes in God out there. And the gods they believe in, they've just modeled and fashioned after themselves. It's not the God of the Bible. It's a propaganda machine. There's a temptation, there's a discouragement in the world. Sometimes it's easy to feel like the world has all the weapons. That's what Goliath says to David. Uh, says, I've got all the weapons. He speaks of his equipment. Notice, secondly, that he speaks of God's awareness. It says in the Philistine, curse David by his gods. You know what he's implying to David? When you curse someone's God or curse them by your gods, you were uh, conveying to them that your God was more powerful than their God. And so what the Philistine is saying to David when he curses him by his God is he's saying, David, that God that you say you believe in is nothing but a fairy tale. He can never help you. So God's not aware of your plight, David. God doesn't care about what's going on with you. And the God you think exists doesn't even exist. That's what we're hearing today. We hear it all the time. We live in a day, I don't know when it is, listen to me, I don't know when it is that secular humanism parading as Darwinian evolution took over the academic community. Secular humanism parading as Darwinian evolution has hijacked the scientific community. I had a young man say to me the other day, he said, the problem with religion is that it hinders the advance of humanity. Says it, had been, it, it, it hinders science. I said, well, I don't think Newton hindered science. I don't think Galileo, Brother Ralph, hindered science to you. I don't think Einstein hindered science. I don't think Kepler hinder, hindered science. No, but they, they try to look at us and they try to say, well, uh, the problem is that God you say you believe in, he's just a fairy tale. He's just fa-. You know, they've always said that about God. Uh, that's why Peter had to say, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we may known unto you the power and majesty of His coming. Because there were some in Peter's day that were saying that God that you serve is just a fable. He's just a fairy tale. He's not aware of your plight. And then notice thirdly that Goliath looks at him and he tries to redefine the outcome. He says, come to me. And he says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
He looks at him and says, it's impossible, David. This battle is already done. You can come to me with your little toothpick of a weapon. You can come to me with your fairy tale God, but I'm going to crush you. You can't stand against me. That's what the world's telling our young people and telling our Christians. You can't serve God. You can try, but you'll fail. You can't take a stand. Hey, listen, you can't be faithful to church. Look what all you'll miss out on. You can't ask your kids to dress different from the world. Well, they'll look at them like they're peculiar. That's because they are peculiar. They're a peculiar people, zealous unto good works. You can't expect your kids to not go and be involved in, in some of these things that are of the devil and of hell. People will uh, ostracize them. Yeah, that's what Christ said. He said, the world hates you. It doesn't hate you, it hates me in you. The only way we can be accepted by the world is if they don't see Christ in us. And so we can endeavor to try to be accepted by the world, but the only way we can do it is by committing high treason against our Lord and Savior. Notice what David says when he answers him, and I'm, I'm done. Goliath looks at him, and he says, Your equipment is insufficient. Look what David answers uh, down in verse uh, number 45. And then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but... I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Now picture it, if you will. Goliath comes to him and says, David, you're not only in over your head, you're not only outmatched, you're ill-equipped. David, it's a joke for you to be standing before me. And David looks at him and says, No, Mr. John, I'm sorry, you don't understand. It's you who came unprepared for this battle. It's you who came ill-equipped. Because you may have your sword, you may have your spear, you may have your shield, but you've come to me in the name of a dead pagan God, and I come to you in the name of the living God of Israel this day. He says, I come to you with a name that's more powerful than your piddly old sword. He says, I serve the God that founded and created and formed the rocks from which you drew the iron to forge that sword. I serve the God that put breath in you and can take it out of you. I serve the God of this universe. I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then I kind of like the way that, that David says this. And it's just tagged on at the end. It says, whom thou hast defied. You know, you know what David's saying? He's saying, he's saying Goliath... You come to me with a sword and a shield and a spear. I come to you in the name of God. And he's mad. <laughs> That's what he's saying. And he's mad. I mean, I come to you in the name of God, and he's pretty upset with you right now. Could I say, friend, that we may feel like we don't have any of the advantages. We may feel incapable. We may feel small and inadequate. But it's the world that's deficient for this battle. We come in the name of the Lord God, Jehovah. We come in the name of the Almighty God, the Lord of hosts. We come in the name of our God who is a man of war. I mean, when we come in His name and with His will and His purpose, we're plenty equipped for the battle. He goes on a little further. He says, uh, no, you're deficient, Goliath. You don't have all you need. But look down at verse number 46. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Goliath looks at him and curses him by his gods, and he's saying, David, you don't understand your God's a fairy tale. You know what David says? David says, yeah, my God's fixing to show up. That's what he says in verse 46. It starts... With God, when it says, this day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. And it ends with God when he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He's saying, Goliath, you think that God's not paying attention, but God's watching everything that you're doing. You think that God's not hearing my prayers, but God is aware of everything that's taking place. And listen, sometimes we get to feeling discouraged and we feel like God's not anywhere around, not within a thousand miles of what we're doing. But we can be encouraged to know that God is aware of our situation. He looks at Goliath and says, Goliath, not only are you deficient, but you're deceived. Notice the final thing. He looks at him and he says, You come to me, David. I'm going to feed you to the fowls of the air, beasts of the field. He says, Listen, 
David, this is how we'd say it if, if he was in East Tennessee. He'd say, uh, David, you come to me, I'm going to feed you to the buzzards and the coyotes. There's not, your, your bones are going to bleach out here in this valley. There's going to be nothing left of you. He said the outcome's different than what you're expecting. And notice what David says to him in verse number 47. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. He says, Goliath, you're not only deficient, you're not only deceived, you don't even know it yet, friend, but you're already defeated. Listen carefully to me this morning. The devil may still be wreaking havoc, but he's a defeated foe. He is already, he's been defeated at Calvary. And I know that the devil likes to come up to us. We're trying to do our best to serve God and live for Him. And the devil comes up and says, you'll never do it. You're going to die. You're going to lose it. You're going to lose everything. You're going to fail. We just remember to look at him and say, no, devil, you don't understand. Your death warrant's already been signed. You're already defeated. If you're within a thousand miles of me, it's only because the good God of heaven allowed you to be for some reason. You can't do a thing to me except I let you into my life and I allow you to persecute me. There's not a thing you can do. You cannot defeat me because you're already defeated. When you get to the place where we quit letting the world set the terms in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces to the best of our ability... We need to, listen, we need to quit letting the world set the terms in our heart. Most of us, we set the bar just a little higher than the, than the wicked mess that this world lives in, and we think we're being a good Christian. I, am I right? I mean, most of us, hey, the world will only let their kids go see, uh, you know, they'll let them go see R-rated movies. I only let mine see PG-13. That's what we think, Right? I mean, hey, you know, the world, they'll let their uh, girls get out in a two-piece bikini. Looks like underwear, right? Right? I thought I was done. Isn't that right? Tell me the difference other than a little piece of mesh between a two-piece bikini and what they're wearing under their clothes. Tell me the difference now. Is there a difference? Most of us wouldn't let our daughters or, or, or wives or anyone else, wouldn't let them walk around the streets in their underwear. Hope you wouldn't. We're all right this morning. This, we need this. But we'll let them get out in that, and then we'll put them in a one piece and we'll say, oh, I'm so spiritual. Right? Right? I got as much time as you do this morning. I got more, Amen. <laughs> I'll sleep in my car if I have to. We're on preaching ground. This is okay this morning. We set the bar a little higher than the world. And we say, oh, I'm so spiritual. I'm so spiritual. God help us. We need to get to the place where we quit letting the world set the bar for us. Where we quit letting the world define who and what we are and what we should be. And we start saying, I'm going to let the Word of God tell me who and what I am and who and what I should be. Well, we'll do what we want. Every single one of us does. We do exactly what we want. We do nothing more. We do nothing less. But I hope this morning I've encouraged you by saying this. The battle is possible. You can fight it. You can do something for God this morning. You can set your heart upon Him and let God use you.